Hey, it's Lucas Crowbot, and we have something a little different for you today. I was recently interviewed by Anand Datani, who is the host of the Journey Onwards podcast. Anand probed pretty deep into some of the more personal aspects of my life that I don't normally share about here on the show. Anand focused around themes such as how I view purpose, greatness, and destiny. But he really pushed past a lot of those surface level conversations and gave me a lot of room to articulate some of these ideas in a little bit of a different way. There are two stories that I share in this episode that really actually hit home for me in a somewhat of an emotional way. The first one is when we talk about divine appointments. And I share a story, a very personal story, about a divine appointment that I missed. And what makes it really emotional for me is that the divine appointment wasn't intended for myself, but it was something that was going to be a gift for someone else. And I missed the moment. And I, I really hope you listen and catch that story and do something about it because I don't want that uh, for your life. Even now, as I, as I, think, I think about it, tears um, well up in my eyes. The second aspect that really hit home for me was when Anand asked me about the legacy that I wanted to leave. And we got into a conversation about how when I am on my deathbed, I do not want to have actually fulfilled and completed my legacy. I don't want to have dreams that I am able to fulfill or complete in my own strength. I want to dream for a generation. I want to have dreams that are bigger than I am. I want to die having greeted those dreams from afar. I want to dream the dreams of God. And I believe that when we begin to expand our vision and begin to dream for not just, not just dreams that are bigger than us, not just bigger vision for our life, but where we begin to lay down our life and live and live for another age that we are able to enter in to one of the most exciting adventures that we could ever think or imagine. So I hope that you enjoy this episode and between now and the next time we talk, go out and own your future. What's going on guys, Anand here and welcome back to another episode of the Journey Onwards podcast. Is the sound still there? still good still good perfect perfect in which i get to spend time remotely at least with people whose life journey has seen them cross borders and cultures and through reliving some of these stories we unravel how these experiences and the lessons learned along the way help to shape their identity values and ultimately what impact that they want to have on the world they live in I feel like uh, giving the listeners a slight bit of a background to why this has started on a very upbeat note, and that's because we had a few technical issues, which I think, the, you know, looking at the kind of silver lining behind it, I feel like we've already been through a bit of an adversity together and come out stronger. We have, you know what, our, our technical issues are much like every marriage. <laughs> Just as a warning, this conversation was like no other. And that only makes it even more fitting given who my guest is for the episode. You know, the whole time I was like, the problem's on your end, the problem's on your end, and you're trying to fix this problem for about 30 minutes. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. 
the problems on my end. Lucas is one of the most fascinating individuals I have ever spoken to, ever. He's a public speaker who creates transformational journeys and communication strategies for value-driven organizations. Born in the United States, he's now based in the Middle East, and he's also the author of the book titled Anchored, The Discipline to Stop Drifting, as well as the host of the most suitably titled The Lucas Scrobot Show. He's a man whose knowledge and life perspectives knows no bounds, and over the next hour, you'll get a very good sense of this. So all that's left for you to do is to listen with intent and enjoy the journey. So uh, isn't that the irony of, of so many times in life where like, everyone else is the problem, and uh, it turns out that <laughs> you're the problem all along. In this case, it's <laughs> me being the problem all along. It's a joint effort. It was. It's, it's funny that you bring that angle up because um, a, a good friend of mine who's also a, a top podcaster, and he did an episode recently on kind of tips when it comes to relationships and arguments. And his, let's call it a, a slightly more unconventional view of it, was that we we shouldn't learn with our partner to to figure out how not to argue. It's actually to figure out how to argue. And it's the kind of skill behind, you know, there's always going to be disagreements and um, these kind of challenges. And it's knowing yeah. how to efficiently argue with your partner to find a solution. You know, I feel like we're diving straight in. But one thing that really drew me to you, it was only a brief interaction that we had, but it was around Gottman. And uh, oh, yeah, even that was around the relationship point. Wow, it's, it's, this is an angle I wasn't looking to take with this, but, you know, let's let's go with it. And the whole idea of how many positive comments or actions need to be performed to balance out one negative one. And that's the Gottman ratio. Just off that very brief back and forth that we had, you just seemed very intriguing to me, which is why I reached out to you. And I'm, I'm you know, really happy that you agreed to be on this show. So firstly, thank you for that. Oh, I'm excited to be here. And yeah, you mentioned the Gottman five to one ratio. And we, as you said, we, we met with a very brief interaction on clubhouse where you brought up Gottman and uh i chimed in i and i think if i remember the conversation right we were talking about the five to one ratio that john Gottman and the Gottman institute talks about how in a relationship you need five positive interactions to counterbalance every one negative interaction and oftentimes what people then say is like oh my goodness look these negative interactions that we're having are so destructive we need to try to minimize negative interactions, and we begin to swallow our own personalities mm. and avoid conflict. But when we avoid conflict, we're just sweeping things underneath the rug. And the, the real thing to take away from that Gottman uh, five to one ratio is saying, okay, the, the five to one is a minimum to have that level of homeostasis, but healthy relationships have a 20 to one. And we're always going to have conflict in our relationships and conflicts are, are healthy. As, as you mentioned, Jay Shetty, he talks about it's not about avoiding conflict, but how to have healthy conflict and conflict resolution. And this is something that we teach our boys. You know, we have four boys. And as you can imagine, they are wild and, and crazy. They're, you know, eight down to one and a half. And we teach conflict resolution. So if they have a conflict, it's don't come to mom and dad. It's like, why are you coming to me? Like, what do I have to do with your conflict? And so we teach them how to go through conflict res resolution, which is, you know, address one another first. And then if you can't work it out between yourselves and you've tried, 
then bring it to us and we can help mediate and help work through that conflict resolution. But the important thing is that you continue to add positive interactions each step of the way and have a healthy relationship and a positive environment outside of those conflicts, mm. which will really make those conflicts uh, much easier. But I mean, that's not necessarily the, the, the conversation for today, I know. Yeah, but just on that, and this is something I did want to ask you about at one point, but let's cover it now. I think it might not have been that exact conversation where it came from, but there's a lot of talk right now, especially as people become ever present on social media. How do you react to the kind of negative comments and press that you get? You know, the bigger you grow, the more likely it is that you're going to eventually come across a negative comment. A lot of the kind of input is, oh, ignore those comments. You know, who cares about that person and what they think? Yeah. What, what's your view? Do you think it is something that when these negative comments arise, you should confront them face on or should you just dismiss them? Um, there's a couple different proverbs that I, I would pull out when it comes to mind. The first is woe to you to everyone who speaks well of you. And so if everyone's speaking well of you, that's not really a good sign. That probably means that you're a people pleaser and you're not standing up for something and you're not standing for truth. You're not, you're not making a stance in your life. So there's that. Uh, and then the, the next two proverbs is a pair. And it is um, answer a fool in the manner of a fool, rather the fool thinks he's wise. And the next one is like it, which is don't answer a fool lest he thinks he, he's wise. Mm. So when someone's coming at you with, with foolish arguments, you have to use discernment of whether do I just shut my mouth and not answer them and not engage in this conversation? Or is it a time where you need to answer a fool in the manner of a fool? It takes a lot of discernment. But if you're not getting any, if you're not getting any negative conflict or any negative comments, then you're probably doing something wrong, or you're not taking a stand hard enough. And that's something that I, I too have to work on. I have to work on taking a harder stance on things and really stand up and articulate things to make sure that people are really clear of where I stand and where I don't stand. Oh, well said. And you know, I've, I've listened into your podcast as well, which is excellent. And some of the other conversations you've had. And one thing you definitely do is take a stance. Well, good. Yeah. Like you say, you feel it might not be strong enough, but for sure, you have views that I find very intriguing. And before we dive into that, I really want to go back to the beginning as you know, the kind of purpose of this podcast is, I really want to see where it began. So I would love you to tell me where Lucas started, where the story of Lucas began. Yeah, so I, I grew up and my, my dad was a pilot. And so because of that, his job brought him lots of different places across the world. So I, I grew up not as a, you know, your show is often about immigration and immigrants and someone living in a new culture. Mm. And so I didn't necessarily grow up as an immigrant. I haven't immigrated to another place and kind of naturalized in that manner. But I grew up in, in Haiti for a time and then Papua New Guinea. And it was through that time, I think some some issues became apparent in my life, the kind of underlying questions that I started answering. And I don't think that they're unique to me. I don't think that they were unique to me because of I, I moved. I think everyone has the questions that I'm about to, to uh, list off, the problems. But it was probably just a, a different, it manifested itself differently due to the fact of, you know, having moved 20, 30 times um, by the time I reached university. Wow. 
And that question is, was who am I? What is, like, who is Lucas? What is my culture? Um, there's a, a phrase that you're probably familiar with. It's a third cultured kid or being of a third culture where, you know, I grew up, you know, I'm, I'm a white American born in Chicago with, you know, Polak blood and moved overseas. But then my community, my relational life was very multicultural. Most of my friends were Korean or Japanese or they were uh, Papua New Guinean. And so I have a very mixed culture on the inside. And there, when growing up overseas, I, I couldn't find my place, which was like this, who, this question of who am I? What is my, what is my place here right. in society? Because I don't look like I fit in and my culture doesn't fully fit in and meld, but my internal world, my culture isn't, definitely is not American. So I don't fit in there either. And so I was left in this in-between place that most third culture adults and children kind of have that feeling. You're kind of stuck between two worlds. And I think that experience growing up where I think as a child, I was really looking to the culture around me and saying, I want to fit in. I like, I want to assimilate this culture, but I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't assimilate that culture because it, I'm just not from that culture. My skin color is not from that culture. And so I was always an outsider. And then I was halfway through my 11th grade year, finishing up high school, moved back to the States and the problem only got bigger, I think, in my mind, where now I look like I fit in, but my inside is like it doesn't right. fit in. And so all of a sudden I move, I move from like the middle of nowhere in Papua New Guinea to um, Denver, Colorado. And my friends at one point, they really gave me a hard time because and rightly so. Because every phrase out of my mouth was, oh, well, in Papua New Guinea, it's like this. Oh, well, where I grew up, it's like this. And just time and time and time again. And I remember one day, one of my friends turning to me and being like, just shut up. Like, you just think that you're better than us because you live somewhere else. And I was really taken aback. And I remember pondering this for, for a couple of days. And I realized that I was trying to, I was just trying to fit in. I was trying to have some sort of identity marker to say, I, I'm a, I have an experience too. Like I, I wanted to be known. I wanted people to, to see who I was, my culture on the inside, not just my skin on the outside. And so as I, as I, this problem, I think was an underlying question and driver that as I've reflected on it, even in preparation for this episode with you, this conversation, realized that probably after college, I still had this question of, of who am I? How do I fit in? Where is my place in this world? How do I integrate with society? And that caused us, me and my wife, to, and I was really the instigator, dragging my wife <laughs> all the way across <laughs> the world to, to move across the world in this desire to figure out, like, where do I fit? Who am I? And now this is a question that more... For the first time in history, society is asking, that you're probably asking. You're asking, who am I? What am I going to do? And am I going to make it? Now, I didn't come up with this. I stole this from a professor of sociology and anthropology, Dr. Michael Welsh, who, who talks about that if you look through the, the pages of history, you have you know a 200, 300-page novel, each page being about 50 years of history. 
It was only in the last three pages of the novel of history has mankind started to ask this question. Who am I? What am I going to do? And am I going to make it? Because oh, wow. for the first time in history, we're able to be anything. We're able to have class mobility. We're able to choose our career and our path. And for this first time in history, we're wondering, are, are we going to make it? Like, is there going to be food? Mm -hmm. Am I going to find a job? Am I going to be able to make it in this highly competitive, globalized world? And what am I going to do? So one of the interesting points you, you mentioned was around having this, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth and say identity crisis, but maybe an identity clash. And you drew to the term of the third culture kid. Did you find during your you know, phase of growing up and recognizing yourself as this, did it draw you to other people, you know, who are other third culture kids? Yeah, absolutely. So Malcolm Gladwell talks about um, in his book, I believe, um, The Tipping Point. Okay. He talks about how normal people, and I'm, I'm going to say that you and I are probably not normal people just by the the, the topic of your, your show, but mm -hmm. normal people have a lot of tight relationships. The normal people have a, a small number of very tight-knit relationships, and this would be my wife growing up. She grew up in the same house in a little town outside of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and she had a small number of very close relationship and very, and very few number of loose ties. Mm. But for people who move a lot, they end up having the converse of that. So I have a very few number of tight relationships I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of loose ties. Right, right. But with those loose ties, I instantly, when I connect with someone, I instantly am like, oh, they're a close friend. Even though probably in their mind, if they come from a, a place of having, used to having tight-knit relationships, they probably don't view me as a close friend because they need long decades of history and shared meaning and shared experience together. Hmm. But for me, as... I connect on a different level and be like, oh, no, I, I got you. And there's this this loose connection, but I have hundreds of those, and I can pick up those relationships very easily, and, and I view my relationships probably differently. And so when I, when you know, when we moved overseas, we, we, we had a friend in Oman, and we came out and visited him, and he was like, hey, it's great. Like, business is awesome here. You should think about moving. And so we did. We moved, and we studied language for a couple of years because I'm just a firm believer that language opens the door to culture. Oh, absolutely. And one thing that I was always frustrated with, um, you know, from the years I lived in America was when someone didn't learn English, it felt like, it's like, come on, like it, it's opens, like it's opens shared meaning and culture. And likewise, when, when I moved overseas, I made it a, a point. I'm like, I'm going to learn the language of the land that I live in. Otherwise it's, it's like I wouldn't ever understand the culture and wouldn't able to to connect with people. So we took time doing that. But then we lived in Kuwait for a number of years or a number of, about a year, excuse me. And all of a sudden I, I began encountering what I would consider third cultured Arabs. There are these Arabs that I didn't experience in my first couple of years in Oman, but these Arabs that were Western educated, knew more about pop pop culture than I did, dressed cooler than I did, knew more about, you know, Joe Rogan and all these podcasts and people and like what's going on in the world that I did. And I was like, oh my goodness, I connect with you. Like, mm. I I see that you too are, are stuck between two different worlds, not necessarily because you moved a lot, 
but because Western media infiltrated your world and now you're you're working out who who is this new Arab of millennial youth. And as you know, what 60-70% of Arabs in the GCC are under 30. And they are they're growing up on media. And by the time a, a kid reaches 13 or 14, they've consumed, I believe, 30,000 hours of media. Oh, wow. And so media is informing the next generation. And it's an interesting perspective you've raised around, um, because I think I'm quite similar when it comes to the type of friendships I hold and where I see the value in. And it's really around the point of, you know, quality of time versus the quantity of time invested. Yeah. And I think you're right when you are someone who has moved around or at least traveled around a lot, you you know that in some cases your time is limited with that particular individual. So you do start to value it on the quality of time you're able to spend with them. And I think people are realizing more and more now about, you know, it's the the energy you give to a person in the conversation rather than the time, right? Why give an hour to someone when you're distracted, when you can give 20 minutes of your 100% time. But on the flip side, do you feel there was also an element of knowing that there's not as much time span, say if you knew you were only going to know them for a year and then you'd have to move abroad, sure that quality remains and you can pick up the relationship again. But do you think it ever stopped you getting close and forming a stronger bond with that person, you know, not necessarily out of fear, but just out of knowing that in a year's time, you're not going to be geographically that close to them anymore. Absolutely. And I think out of fear, out of fear and out of self-preservation and out of wanting to protect ourselves from pain. Yeah. Um, that was definitely something that I did as when I was younger. Um, I would I would see the the break off of the relationship coming because of a geographical move or a change in life season and I would, you know, move from fifth gear to reverse in a matter of moments, you know, it's just like we're done, like like halas just cutting all ties. And uh that was a, a very painful process that I had to walk through because you know, even today there's a lot of pain from having to say goodbye to so many close relationships. Um, and that's something that too, I've had to help my wife walk through as we've, you know, in our marriage, she, she grew up, you know, as I said, in the same house, but then we've moved, I don't know how many times since being married and just that journey and process of having to, um, let go of, of friendships. It's painful. Mm -hmm. And then it's something that I have to walk my boys through and, stewarding their hearts to make sure that they walk through it rightly so they don't come out on the other side um, embittered and angry at uh, the life that they they got to live and I think there's a number of sacrifices that that moving brings especially on children yeah I can I can relate I mean my um, my nephew and niece so my sister's two kids they've you know, they're now, my nephew is just entering his teens, but they've already lived in the UK, Belgium and Netherlands. And I know that my niece found it very wow. difficult when she left. I, I can't remember the exact age, but they were in Amsterdam and then they moved to Brussels and she found it difficult to leave behind probably her first uh, real friends that she formed in school. And, you know, then it becomes a case of, is it just something that you end up getting used to because you have to? Or, like you say, is it always a sacrifice where, you know, there will be a part of you that 
is missing out on that real connection with someone. I think, I think, as you said, you know, what side is it? I think there's, there's a part where from moving a lot, we learn to connect deeply and quickly with people. And there's a, there's mm. a place of health that we can move to, to look at a person and say, you know, I might not have known you long. I might not have years of shared meaning and shared experience together, but in this moment I can connect deeply with you and you can satisfy this relational need. And then as we, we move on to another season in life, we can actually bring those relationships with us. It doesn't look the same and it takes work and effort, but I'm still connected with, with friends that I grew up with. Mm. Um, and you know, I have a couple friends that I, I text on a probably weekly basis, um, from primary school and high school, even though we from different parts of the world and grew up together and he, you know, he was a couple of years older than I was. Um, so he probably left three or four years before, um, I ended up leaving. But with that, I, I do think that we, we end up forming a few special relationships over time that we, that right. become kind of that close knit relationship. And that takes work to maintain because of not being in proximity. Um, I have, uh, you know, our closest friends of our family who's the best man in my wedding. You know, we make it an effort for every holiday, you know, bar this past year, um, to spend the holidays together, to go somewhere, to spend Thanksgiving or spend Christmas together. And we spend three or four weeks together um, as two families. And so it takes work, it takes effort. So for the people who never really travel around and, you know, they've kind of grown up in the same place, gone to school in the same place, had the same friends, there's the obvious benefit of being able to have that longevity and that connection and them really seeing you through years of your ups and downs. But do you, do you think there's an element that they're missing out on by always kind of having just lived in a bubble, which, you know, may be a multicultural bubble, but essentially you are surrounded by that same radius of people that you always have been. Do you feel they almost miss out on a certain element of being able to build connections and relationships? I mean, I think it's a, it's a trade-off. I, I, you know, just as there's a trade-off of moving around, there's a trade-off of being in one spot. Um, I wouldn't say that one is better than the other. I don't think I, I would qualify it as that. Mm -hmm. I think naturally, of course, there's going to be a trade-off of not having moved, of not having to learn how to build new friendships. Most of our friendships and, you know, the, probably the people that you talk about or talk with on the show, um, as they immigrate to new lands, they realize this. But most all of our relationships were handed to us. We didn't have to go out and figure out how to make new relationships. Our relationships came from from our family and our, our friends of our parents. And then our relationships came from our, our school life. Our relationships came from our coworkers and our work life or, or uh, our synagogues or mosques or our churches, right? That was kind of like the, the radius of our relationships and those were all given to us. But when we move to a new place, all of a sudden we wake up in, in the hotel room or the apartment or the, the strange empty home and we realize, crap, I don't have any friends and no one taught me how to make friends. Like no one taught me how to like go out and like find real friendship. You're in a new place. 
you have a job, you kind of meet some coworkers, you kind of meet some people that maybe if you're going to university and you quickly realize that everyone has their own cliques, everyone has their own groups, everyone has their own existing relationship and you are left on the outside of everyone else's networks and relationships and you're trying to figure out how do I, how do I then build this for myself? And it's difficult. And how did you go through that process of, as you kind of say, waking up and realizing I don't know anyone else here and, and building those relationships? Yeah, I think it goes back to the, the driving motivation probably in me to cause, to cause us to, to say, hey, let's go on this adventure. It'll be awesome. Like, let's, you know, travel the world and work overseas. You know, that's a great idea. And probably in that, moving to a, a physical and a metaphorical desert, mm. um, I was stripped bare, right? I was really stripped bare of everything that I leaned on. I was stripped bare of identity, of, you know, of my success, of what people thought of me. Because all of a sudden, no one thinks anything of you. You have, you're a stranger, you have no success, you have no identity. And there's, a, I remember talking to a, one friend that I had who he had traveled, he was a topographer and has done a lot of work around the world. And he was like, yeah, you have to refine your identity. You have to figure out how do you mesh with this culture? Who are you in this culture? Who are you? And you have to re almost reinvent yourself, but that takes this stripping down. It takes this death. It takes dying to what you thought you should be. Mm. And uh, I forgot who said it, but we are and we act in the manner of what we think the most important person in our life thinks about us. If let's say our, our dad is the most important person of our life, we're going, to, we're going to believe about ourselves what we think they think about us. Yes. And we're going yes. to operate in a manner of what, okay, what I think they want me to be, that's what I'm gonna try to be. And so I, I go on that, that digression to say oftentimes we're so bent on finding our truth, finding how are you so unique in the world that we forget that our, there is a large measure of our value being rooted in the confines of the society that we're in. Because if we want to make an impact, we have to add value to people's lives, meaning we have to be meaningful to other people, right? This is like basic business 101. If you wanna be, a, do a million dollars in revenue, you either have to provide a million dollars of value to one person or one dollar of value to a million people, right? So we need to find in the context and, and the, the boundary lines of a healthy society, we need to find out who are we while at the same time not leaning on false expectations that we have placed upon ourselves. And it's through that stripping process that I went through of being isolated and realizing um, so much of the things that I, I did was in this search for affirmation. Um, it, it was a long process that really then over time caused me to wake up to, to have to wrestle with who I want to be in life and, and what do I want to do with my life. Yeah, I really love what you've said there. And I mean, firstly, thank you for being so open and honest about the vulnerabilities that you went through at the time in terms of the stripping down and having to identify with who you are and what your worth is. 
And to the quote that you're mentioning, I actually first heard it of Jay, who references Cooley, who said that, I'm not who I think I am. I'm not who you think I am. I'm who I think you think I am, right? Right. And he's referenced it a number of times, but ever since I first heard it, it really made me reflect on areas in my own life where I may be doing that, where I'm either reacting or acting in a certain way, depending on how I perceive the other person is going to then uh, have a view on me or an opinion on me, or even certain days and fluctuations and emotions sometimes come from the fact of what do I think this person now thinks of me, either based on something I've done or haven't done. Yeah. The more you think about it, then you can start to try and maybe align differently from that and, and not need that as a kind of validation or approval. But I imagine in society, this is what is happening, which you, you, you partly alluded to. And something that you said reminded me of one of my favorite books, actually, called Influence by Robert Cialdini. Yeah. And in there, there's a number of great talking points. But one was, I can't remember what state in the US, but he spoke about how when there was a suicide written in the newspaper, when there was an article on it, there'll be a statistically significant uptick in the number of suicides that would follow, I think, the next day or within the next few days. Right. And so, you know, it, it really shows there that something is happening where people are reading this and they think it's now okay to do it. And I guess my question to you is, do you think this is a situation where the articles like this and the influence of media, etc., is then providing an outlet for people to become more of what they are and it's seeing this has allowed them to externalize these internal feelings or are these influences taking them away from what they naturally are yeah so um the first part with the, the suicide thing um i know in uh inuit tribes up in alaska their, their suicide rates are just enormously high i mean like i think like 80 percent suicide rates it's just like uh, maybe 80 percent is like an exaggeration i don't know the exact number don't quote me on that um but then there's also I, I don't know if it was in that book or a different book but talking about um how there's some islands in indonesia where it became like a thing to do and it just was like rampant and exploding um and so in you asked a very tricky question which was is media influencing this or is this a great thing that should be celebrated and, and people waking up to their true identity? Uh, and I don't have the studies in front of me. I have my, I have what I believe to be true. But what I'm going to, to say is when you look at the instances in these, because normally it used to be men that thought they were transgender and it was a phenomenon among men. But now all of a sudden, in a matter of a few short years, has become a, a huge phenomenon among young teenage girls. And the suicide rate among trans is the same of suicide rates in the Auschwitz uh, concentration camp in Germany. And a lot of people are saying, oh, and th these are the rates in the States. They're saying, oh, well, this is a sign that there is so much trans hate. There has never been a time in the world that being trans has been more celebrated and put on a pedestal and applauded. But, it, but when you look at what's happening to real people's lives, the depression, the anxiety, the, the, the physical problems that they have then from all of this uh, testosterone, 
or double mastectomies. And so the, the literature is beginning to show that it doesn't lead to a more successful life and success being defined as having healthy relationships, having low levels of anxiety or depression or suicide, having a, an integral part that you can play in society is actually quite the opposite. Yeah, and I believe it's Ben Shapiro who is quite expressive about that connection between transgender and suicide rates. And, you know, the obvious argument here is that because of trans hate, that's why there's a high number of suicides amongst the transgender population. But his point is that, you know, there is this correlation that exists between people who go through this transformative process and then have these thoughts that, well, eventually lead to these fatal actions, which is very interesting. And I'm sure we could have a whole discussion on that. But to touch on what you were saying about your identity and kind of realizing that you had to strip it down for you to start asking those questions, how did that change over time as you then journeyed further onwards and began to understand where you fit into society? I think I cannot wait to be 65. And the reason I say that is because I think I will become, I'll be more comfortable in my skin at 65 than I am here at 35 than I was at 15. And so when I was a, a kid, I had these, these kind of like seeds of dreams of, of who I wanted to be. But then I, I took on a lot of assumptions of what I thought that would look like. And I think at times I'm still having to to work through those assumptions of what I think my life should look like. And I have to lay those down and resign those um, and, and actually step into, into things that I'm like, I didn't think you would look this way. I didn't think you would feel this way. And in time, I definitely have become more secure in my identity because my identity no longer comes from what other people say about me, but it's rooted and, and grounded in um, you know, what God says about me. Even if you look through evolutionary history, we can say, well, this could have been how it happened. This is how it happened, but we don't know what caused it. What is the, the original event? And so people of, of a monotheistic faith would believe that that event was God, right? That he created the heavens and the earth and he created us. And so I have found my identity when it moves away from fear of what other people think about me or living my life in proxy to what I want people to think about me, what I think will make me look successful, whether that's chasing economics, whether that's chasing cars or being of intellectual prestige, or whatever those, those things are in my life, the more that I lay that down and I realize that I do not have to work for approval, but I'm already approved before I work. And there's a difference when we realize that I'm, I'm already approved of, I'm already accepted, I'm already loved. That is the, the thing that has, that has freed me from anxiety. And, and when I hold on to that, um, a lot of my identity purpose issues become much more clear. Oh, it's really, really insightful, everything that you've said there. And what really stood out to me was when you said that I don't have to work for my approval, but I'm already approved before I work which I think there's so much depth to that. And actually, tell me more. What does that really mean to you? I'd love to understand what you mean by it. Yeah, it's all this work-based system. And what has set me into a place of freedom 
is realizing that before I do, I am accepted. Before I, I go out and do those good works that both of us are, are commanded to do, and both of us are believed that we should do, and the, the path that we know that we're called to walk, before I go and do that, I know that I'm already accepted. And it's that knowing that I'm already accepted, knowing that I'm already loved, that gives me the ability to go out with confidence because now if I fail, it's okay because I wasn't doing it for approval. But when I switch in my mind to doing it for approval, the anxiety just like comes crashing in, just crushing. Yeah, that really is a powerful message. And for those of you listening, if that was something that you could relate or resonate with, possibly, you know, an internal battle with the acceptance of people around you, then I hope that what was said can kind of start to help reframe that in a dialogue or thought process, because there's a really powerful point. And Lucas, you were talking earlier about having that need to figure out how to fit in. But with this kind of adjustment in your way of thinking and mindset, did that really help you to then find your identity or find how to fit in into society? Yeah, yeah. And it, it does because I think what I've, what I've realized, and, and probably a lot of people talk about it uh, maybe in, in different ways. So maybe this is just like a, maybe a unique phrasing of a, a concept. But that just like, as you talk about on your show of immigration and being, you know, whether it's refugees or, or uh, sojourning or traveling around and moving a lot, I realized that this world, like I'm a stranger in this world. I don't fit in this world. I'm a misfit in this world. And probably every person feels like that to a certain degree. Maybe they're more or less aware of it. And probably people who move around a lot more are more aware of it because th they're not able to have these hold on to these physical trappings such as maybe a home or a, a single location. But when I, when I move into understanding that I'm here today, I'm gone tomorrow, like my life is short, when I realize that no one is going to remember me in 150 years, even if I'm like really, really famous, my great, great, great grandkids probably will not know my name. Like once I realize that, it shifts, it shifts what we live for in this life. I'm really glad that you've said that because it's something I want to ask you about, which is based on what you've said in a previous podcast of yours. You said that you want to have an impact that gets remembered or has an effect 300 years from now. Yeah. And I absolutely love that because... You know, one of the main points of this podcast is to be able to create that audio collection and recollection of people's life journeys to be able to not only inspire people who listen to it now, but hopefully in the generations ahead, uh, whether it's in the person's family or outside the family to hear the stories and think, wow, I'm, I'm inspired by what they've been through and what they've created. And so what I'd really love to know is what does that impact look like for you? So I, I write about this in my book, Anchored the Discipline to Stop Drifting. And in it, I talk about, I talk about that of wanting to have a, an impact that lasts for generations. But what that, what that doesn't mean necessarily is that I want to be remembered for generation or my work needs to be remembered for generations. And uh, a theme that I talk about on my show is, you know, who is the greatest influencer? So who's the greatest influencer in your life? Oh, I wasn't expecting the tables to be turned and me the one to be having to answer a question. It's, it's a tough one. I think 
it what makes it tough is to pinpoint that one i can pinpoint the one for you oh yeah it's your mom like who bathed you fed you cleaned you smacked you in the backside of the head when you're being an idiot that did happen like, yes. molded you in like the zero to five when no one else wanted to be around you no one cared and it's these unseen people in society who we who we say well that's not valuable because you know where's the economic return on investment you know they should go out and get a job but moms my wife on our on our kids it has such a deep influence on those four boys such a deep influence that will have generational impact because if we can raise up strong kids who know who they are who know how to treat others who know how to respect others that is going to have a generational impact because they will grow up to be able to leave an impact on the world and their children's children's children for a thousand generations are going to be a blessing to the world the way that I look at it is saying, I, I don't want to have a wide influence. I want to have a deep influence. I want to influence a few people in a deep, significant way so that decades from now, that deep, significant work could have multiplied and grown over time. There's another, another proverb that says, wealth gathered hastily will dwindle, but wealth gathered little by little will continue to increase. And that's the, it's the power of, of compounding interest. And so that's what I'm thinking. It's like, how can I live my life in a way that I have compounding interest that after I die, long after I die, I will be forgotten. My name will be forgotten on this earth, but the world will be a better place because of the deep work that I did and the deep sacrifices that I made. That's amazing. And you touched on that deep influence on your four kids. So... If you could have one impact on them, one value that you could pass on to your kids, mm. what would you love that to be? That's a great question. One value. I, I, I'm going to have to give a religious. I'm going to. I'm going to have to give a religious answer. Is that okay? Sure. Okay. If I have one thing, it'd be love God with everything that you have, and love other people the way that you love yourself. Which baked into that is like you got to love yourself right? Like I can't, I can't love you the way that I love me unless I love me. Yes. Yes. If my kids walked away with that one thing, I would die a happy man. I love that. It's really well said. And I mean, the kind of influence that I can tell you have and the way you talk about your wife and the influence she has, I really have no doubt that they will be able to deliver and live up to these values. So I hope they now get the chance to listen to this episode and hear that kind humble request that you've given them and then uh, again i have no doubt they'll be able to live up to it hopefully you keep that rss feed alive so that after i die um so they can go back and listen to this episode yeah exactly it's part of the reason i ask it because i don't expect it to be an easy answer but it's the idea that you know your thoughts and values and the impact you want to have can live on through the words that you've said in this podcast audio format yeah. so thank you very much for sharing that and so just to move on, and again, it's something I wanted to ask you based on what I've read on something you've said. And correct me if I'm wrong, if it isn't something that you've actually said. It depends on how smart it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but what it was, it was a whole sentence, actually. It was that you'd said, we are all destined for greatness. But some people have read that and disagreed. Yeah. So I'd love to know, and don't get me wrong, so I 
I agree with you, but right. I'd love to know. I guess it's a two-part question. Firstly, what do you mean when you say we are destined for greatness? And then secondly, why were you shocked that some people disagree with that? So let's. I guess we should break down break down that sentence a little bit. Um, you know, you have you have destined, and then greatness, and so with the word destined, you know, it, it goes into this dance between fate and free will, which then goes between fatalism and uh, not rugged individualism, but um, just this belief that we can become self-made people. And both are, it's a dance between the two. Um, I like to think of I, I like to think of the stars and you know how, how they say like your destiny, your fate is written in the stars. And, and the way that I like to, to think of it is that you, you're right. Our fate was written in the stars. Our destiny was written in the stars, but there's a level of responsibility that we have to wake up and get out of bed and, and work like whether that work is like, working out physically or like putting our hand to to the things that we're called to like we have to make decisions there's a level of choice that we have to accept or reject that's which written in the stars and so that's not how i kind of look at that destined it's like just because you're destined to do something does not mean that you'll actually fulfill that destiny because you have free will you have choice where Tomorrow, you could wake up and decide to be like, you know what? It's just not worth it. Like, I know I had all these dreams, but man, drugs feel good. And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna let myself go. And I'm just gonna live for the moment, right? So you, you have a choice in every moment of every day, we have a choice to whether we're going to work to fulfill those, those destinies over our life or not. And then it comes to greatness. And we've already touched on this and I would say, well, what does it mean to be great? Does, does, does it mean Jeff Bezos? Does it mean like having a billion dollar company? Is that the definition of greatness? Does it mean like you're famous and you're like Jay Shetty and everyone knows you and you got like the number one podcast on, on Apple podcast? Like, is that, like, is that greatness? Like how, how do we define greatness? And I, I think the greatest among us are those who serve the most. And that's why I go back to who is the, the greatest person in, in history or in your life. It's, it's moms. It's because moms are working in the shadows where people don't see them. They don't give them recognition. All they get is crying and poopy diapers and, you know, praise. Like, it's great that men are starting to take more shared responsibility in that. But I know that my wife, she wants to be a mom, right? That's like, she's like, I want to do this. This is like, and so when I look at greatness, I don't necessarily define it as uh, success in the eyes of the world, but I define it as like, did you love? If you love people, you're great. And I think that is, that is also what is baked in there. It's like, we all are called. We all were placed on this earth to serve others and love others with great generosity and great sacrifice. Because I can't think of a single person 
that I admire. And I can't think of a single person from knowing your context that I would assume that you'd admire that didn't sacrifice greatly. And we admire people who have the courage to sacrifice greatly. And we say, when you lay down your life in that manner, for other people, we look at that, we like, wow, if I could only be like that. That is powerful. That really is powerful. And so coming back to you in the current day, do you believe that you are optimizing this service? Or let me rephrase that. What does optimizing this service look like? I like the other question. You? Yeah? It's a little bit more confrontational. Am I, opt am I optimizing? I, it's probably no. I would say no. I, I, would, I would say it in this way. I am stewarding the things that I've been given right now to the best of my ability and disciplining my life to the best of my ability while having four kids, while having responsibilities, while having just like shortcomings as a human being that I'm disciplining myself to grow in, right? But like I said, I can't wait till I'm 65. Because when I'm 65, I'm going to know so much more. I'm going to be... I'm going to be more humble, hopefully. I'm going to be more eloquent. I'm going to be gentler. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have more wisdom behind me. And so I know that the vision of, of life, the visions that I, I carry in my heart are so much greater than what I'm living in today. So in that manner, I'd be like, no, I'm not. I'm not living up to, to my full potential but I am stewarding the, the small things that I've been given today. I'm not despising the day of small beginnings of knowing that, okay, things are really small right now, but I'm going to look forward with hope and I'm gonna manifest the things that I do not see with my physical eye, but I see with the eyes of my heart. But even if I die without receiving those things, that's okay. Because many of the greatest people died before they received that which they dreamed for. Many of the greatest people, they died still having a vision that was so much greater and they greeted them from afar. And that's what I wanna be. I wanna be someone that on my deathbed did not complete what I set out to do because if I'm able to complete it in my own strength, in my own humanity, in my own lifetime, then I'm dreaming too small. I'm not dreaming for a generation. I'm dreaming for myself. And I love that point that you just made. And so one question on that would be that you're saying to have a, the dream big enough that you, you kind of leave without it complete. So does that mean you want to put into place either the process or infrastructure that someone can pick it up and carry that on? And if so... How would or how have you done that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I think ideally, right, you'd have a, an infrastructure that could carry on, but also very few organizations, if you're looking from an, uh, an organization standpoint, um, last beyond one generation. You know, once the mm -hmm. visionary leader passes. Um, and so I guess it would, be, it would depend on what a person's vision is or what my vision is of how to see something 
go on for hundreds of years beyond me or beyond you. And that's where I think it's those deeper values that if we can pass those deeper values on, those deeper worldviews that um, the deeper things that might not look like um, a title on a building or a, a billboard somewhere that says, you know, look at me, I did it. Um, I think that that is something. Um, so I don't have a great answer to that question, but it's a good question, one that I probably should think more about. Yeah, it's it's not easy because I think it becomes the case of you don't really know when your final days are in most cases. And so it's how do you know when you're ever fully prepared that you've put into you know implementation the, the tools that someone can pick up? And then, you know, is it almost a bit why should someone carry in your legacy when they probably have their own? Yeah. So, yeah, because there's a question that goes with it. It's like, well, if someone builds this empire, if you will, and the empire collapses the day after they die, was that a successful enterprise? Mm. Right. And, and as you said, it's like, well, good fathers want to see their sons go further than they did. And it goes back to the question of, well, what does it mean to be great? Well, the, the greatest among us are the, the servants of all. So if we want to do something that's great, then we're actually serving other people to become great. And so what does that infrastructure of, of service look like rather than, you know, cause it's flipping the pyramid, right? It's flipping it from like, I like greatness is you made it to the top of the pyramid versus the pyramids upside down and greatness is you are a, a foundational, uh, you know, forefather, if you will, for generations that come after you, you know, how do you, and that's a big question. It's how do you dream for generations? Like, how do you dream for, mm. you know, a, a generation that's not even here on the earth yet? That's a, that's a hard question. I don't, I don't have a, a great answer to it besides the fact that you have to dream. Yes. Right. That perfectly ties into what is your dream and how are you enacting it through what you're currently working on? Yeah, what is my dream? When we look back on kind of like that meta arc that I shared earlier, I would say the thing that I'm I'm focused on right now is these kind of wokeism ideologies that I really think have extremely dangerous and detrimental effects on young people. And I guess my my, my dream right now that I'm working towards is wanting to gird up a generation to be able to discern what is real, to be able to discern what is truth and, and frameworks and worldviews that they can then navigate the world so that they can be successful, whether that's in their relationships or whether that's in a, a, an enterprise, but having a, a solid worldview to be able to kind of sniff out when something is isn't right to understand where the right fitting of society lies and and that really that reminds me of something that you talk about where people come across these moments in life that i think you refer to as like divine appointments how would you two questions actually you know what would you say has been your either one or two divine appointments and then question two how can someone identify these divine appointments 
you know, is it something that you almost have to be attuned and pay attention to seeing and then being able to act on it? Yeah. Or is it just something that's, you know, outside your control? And when the time is right, that appointment comes to you and you will act on it just by the sake of it being a divine appointment. Yeah, let me let me tell you a story that I'm still emotional about. My, my second born son just turned six and he loves horses. And my wife was like, find a horse farm. We need to take him to a horse farm so he can ride a horse on his birthday. And I kind of looked around a little bit. I didn't find one. And uh, so we're driving on like our little side roads in our neighborhood on the way to a coffee shop. And what do we pass? What do we see? But two guys riding horses in the, the side of the street being led by another gentleman. It's like, where do you see that? And, and we slowed down and we kind of waved. He was so excited. He's like, oh my gosh, horses. And I had this little kind of like nudge in my heart of like, you should just stop and say like, hey, it's my son's birthday. He loves horses. Can you like let him ride on it? And I kept on driving. Oh, wow. Oh, I, I kept on driving and in my head it was like, oh, you know, we got to get to coffee. Oh, you know, it's we probably shouldn't ask. And oh, I just kept on driving. Yeah, you'll always find a reason, right? Yeah, later that evening, I was just like so torn up. I was like, oh, wait, I I missed a divine appointment. It was like I've divine, like on the way. It's like right there. Don't see it. Like it doesn't, it's not like I see that every day, every month. I haven't seen it ever before. Like someone on the side of the road in our neighborhood walking on a horse. And I ignored it. So there's an example of, you know, what not to do and how these divine appointments you're in the right place at the right time and it's for a divine moment and a divine reason and it goes back to choice i had a choice in that moment i could have stepped into fate and destiny and purpose for my son right for someone else it wasn't even for me but in some ways i was selfish i didn't want to inconvenience myself and put myself in an uncomfortable position for my son and so i didn't and i i deeply regret it because um, it could have been such a, a special moment for him in his life that I didn't steward. And so there's an example of how you can miss a divine appointment. I don't know if that answers both questions in some ways. No, that, it's amazing. And I think it's really something that I would want the listeners to pay attention to in the fact that I think there's a case of you identified that that was an opportunity for a divine appointment. And for whatever reasoning, you didn't take it. And I think one thing that I would love or hope that people become more aware of is just being more alert to when these opportunities or divine appointments come up. You know, if you don't identify in the first place, you can't take action. Yeah. Because, you know, like you say, there might be this destined for greatness, but the free will will then guide you one way or another. And I think being able to act in a certain way on these appointments can take you to realms you may never have experienced before. So I hope the opportunity does arise again mm -hmm. for your son. So I hope so. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much for, for all those things you shared. And before we do move on, is there anything else you specifically wanted me to ask or you wanted to cover? No, I mean, you did great research. I have to say that much. You, you did in-depth research. You knew what questions you're asking. And uh, I definitely, I definitely feel loved by the, the amount of research that you did. So thank you. I mean, for me, it was, as much of a self-learning when I was listening to you 
rather than just kind of, you know, an investigation so I could ask you certain questions. You've got so much good content out there and there's so much more to listen to and I definitely will be. And I'm also hoping again in the future we can touch base again and have a part two. I'd love that. Let's do it. So moving on to the the quickfire final five. So if you're ready, we can kick off with those. Let's go. Perfect. Question number one. What is the most unconventional advice you've ever received? Most unconventional advice I ever received was during a time when my wife and I's marriage was quite on the rocks. Um, And so we went to therapy and the therapist said, you need to stop doing things for your wife. You need to stop taking things off her plate. And I was like, what are you talking about? That's the last thing I need to do more for her, right? I need to be like a kinder, better husband. But uh, our therapist, the, the wise woman that she was, who, you know, all the way back to Gottman Institute, she taught us everything that we know from Gottman Institute. She essentially said, through you continually to take things off her plate, it's not just that you're enabling her, but you're creating an un- unhealthy power dynamic in your relationships where, where she feels like she's a child and she feels like you're the adult because you're doing everything for her. You need to stop taking things off her plate and you need to let her do them herself. And so that kind of goes back to stuff that we are aware of when we come to like enabling relationships. We want to enable people. And so that was very unconventional advice that drastically improved our marriage. Amazing. I was going to ask, did it work? But it, oh, it yeah, sounds like yeah. it did, which is, which is great. I, I just, you know, I can just be a jerk now. It's great. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, we do not advocate being a jerk. Just <laughs> Don't as a, be a jerk. A disclaimer. <laughs> Don't be a jerk. <laughs> love that. Love that. And question two, if possible, which one country do you think that other countries could take their best practices and values and learn from? That's a, a hard question. I think it's hard because this is why it's hard. Because you can look at a country and you can say, well, what things exactly? I think mm. rather than saying, you know, is there a specific country? Um, I would say, what are the the values and the principles that need to be set up to create a framework for a healthy society? And where do those values and principles come from? And so that's what, that's what I would point to. And I definitely think that there are countries that exhibit these things more rather than less. And um, those would be countries with small government and freedom of speech, liberty, and uh, freedom of religion, things like that. So I, I think that's what I would say. It's rather than which country, I do think certain countries do it better by far, um, but it's really what is the framework, the ideological framework of how the spheres of society fit together and what is the role of government in that society um, is what I would look towards. Perfect. And I, you I tried love, to trap me there. You tried to I, trap uh, yeah. me, but I didn't let you. <laughs> I would love governments to hear this and say, yeah, you know, we, we fit that framework quite well. Um, but you're right. You know. <laughs> well, okay. So, so to answer your question, I think before America did have a framework of a constitution with checks and balances that forced the government to be small and mm-hmm. to be not infringing on people's uh, liberties and rights. But um, 
as things balloon with the debt crisis and all the other crises right now in America. So right now, I would I would look to the the framework that was set up in the Constitution because the Amer in America, they're saying these are the things that we aspire to. And America was the only nation in history that had a war to end slavery. Like mm. they had a civil war to end slavery. So for all, all the marks against America, there was a, a standard that was risen up and said, no, these are against the very things that we believe in the right. document, the, the, the Declaration of Independence. And, and so I think that has been lost. So that's why I can't say America because I'm like, oh my gosh, that place is a mess. Um, but the things that it wants, the things they aspired to in their framework, it's not perfect, but I think it's the best that we've seen. Yeah, very interesting perspective. It's not what I expected, and well, that's what I love. I love answers that I don't expect. So you didn't expect that? No, that's no, surprising. I, I didn't actually know what to expect, but I also oh. I, lo I love the answer. And question three: Would we be more or less happy if electricity never existed? Less, and here's why. Not one person on the face of the earth today would trade places with a billionaire from 150 years ago. Not one person. 150 years ago, we didn't have penicillin. Mm. If you got a like, bacteria infection or your kids did, they died. Like they died. Like electricity has revolutionized the world. Not one person would trade places with a billionaire from 100, 150 years ago. I mean, the, the, the lap of luxury um, and comfort that we live in in 2021, it's incredible. That is powerful. I mean, I think you've said it so well. I'm not going to add anything to that. Question four. What would you want written on your gravestone? A sojourner who lived for another age. Nice. Very nice. I like that. And question five. What is the one thing you want to achieve this year? Oh, you know, at, this, at the beginning of this year, uh, me and my wife, we felt that this was a year of simplicity. Mm-hmm where it was a year of, of finding a, a, a better rhythm and just sticking to the basics, just like getting those rudimentary tasks um, um, down and established even more in our life. Um, and so that's what I want to focus on this year. I just want to, I don't want anything fancy. I just like, I want to do what I've set my hand to with diligence and do it well. And I think that would make, you know, the end of this year a uh, success. I love that. And I, ho I wish you the best of luck in being able to do that. Thank you. And one question that I ask as a bonus question to all guests, and this was actually inspired by the Six Words Memoirs. If you could describe your life journey in six words, what would they be? It would be a sojourner who lived for another age. <laughs> <laughs> See what I did there? I did, yeah. Now, now I know not to ask those two questions in parallel. <laughs> but that's amazing. It also shows that you're very fixed on almost your purpose and your destiny. So that, you know, it kind of proves something in itself, which is amazing. Well, that and I did some homework before the show. So I, I made sure that I, I had an answer there. And it seemed to fit both the gravestone and my life, my life journey. So amazing. Amazing. So let me ask you, let me ask you a question now. Okay. And we touched on it a little bit in the show. But for you, when you think of your audience and the people that you seek to reach 
and the goals that you seek to achieve. You've mentioned it a little bit of how you, know, you want to create this audio uh, anthology to impact people for, mm -hmm. for years. But if you were to boil down the, the core to the one thing, the one thing that essentially what you've asked me, that at your funeral that people, that other people would say about you, what would that be? Oh, that, that is a good question. And I'm sure that this this podcast, the vision that you have for it is an extension of the vision for your life and, and the impact that you seek to have with your life. So I think True. it's probably it's probably one and the same. So if you'd like to answer kind of differently of like this project and then, you know, what is the, the impact that you want to have with your life and the memory that people have about you? No, I think, and you said that well, and while they're one and the same, one presents a slightly longer answer, but essentially, you know, for me, it was, there was a lot of self-discovery about what do I really see as my purpose? And this is why I think that we connected very well is that I fully resonated with the idea of legacy and it doesn't have to be by my name or fame, but it has to be by something mm. that I feel I've, I've created without sounding so egotistical, but basically created that would not have existed if I didn't exist. And so I didn't really know what that was. And through the kind of avenue of discovering my own family journey, what I realized is element number one was providing a digital, like you say, anthology in which these stories can carry on. So generations from now, they can know about their family's journey. But bigger than that, it's to be able to see the influence that that has had on that person's life. Mm. So for me, being able to understand my parents' journey and my uncle's journey and my even my older cousin's journey, I've not only learned about them, but really boiling it down to me, I've learned how that has influenced me as a person, my character as a person, my family's character. And so that's what I really want. I feel like this is allowing people to better identify with themselves, not by their direct surroundings, by something a bit more existential. I love that. Yeah, these characteristics and traits that have been passed down. And I'm sure it gets diluted because environmental factors also take over. But I think there's still some core values and principles that always get passed down and trickle along. And unless someone really investigates it, you never really know. It doesn't mean that the, the effect is still not there. But I think by knowing it, it's almost heightened. Like I've realized more about my desire to connect with people, see the world, how I embrace challenges, how I can adapt well to environments, and to, to understand a bit more of where that came from. And, you know, the influence of seeing my dad having gone through it and telling me about his journey. I now understand my own character a bit better. And that's so that's why I really want that. Not just the, the memories, but how has this internally shaped me as a person? I love that because it's, it's you're saying your identity wasn't framed in isolation, but you're, you're learning that through understanding your family and your uncles and your grandparents and your, your family journey, and there's a, a larger narrative or meta arc that's being told through lineage, through family lines and, and blessings and skills and gifts that different people from different tribes or different backgrounds carry. And so you articulating that is powerful it's very powerful and uh i hope you talk about that a lot on the show because i don't think a lot of people 
especially today, are thinking about their lives in the context of their family lineage. That is all for the show. Thanks for sticking around to the end. If you're here and you've stuck around to the end and you have a question about this show or any other episodes, ask me a question. You can WhatsApp me or Instagram me or whatever me at plus one two zero two nine two two zero two two zero. And if you ask a stupid question, I will give you a stupid answer because stupid answers and stupid questions actually open up the world of understanding even more. And not only will you get a, a pretty bad answer, but I will send you some pretty awesome stickers for free. So ask a question. I'll give you an answer. And I hope that you go out this week and you weave your destiny as we were talking about at the end that we are just a few knots in the tapestry of history. But even though we're only a few knots, we have a significant role. We connect the past generations with the future generations and that there is a narrative, there is a destiny, there's a purpose over your life and my life. And it's not just for ourselves, it's for other people. So go out this week. Step into your destiny, your calling, your purpose, because you were born to unlock the purpose and the destinies of others. That's all. I'll see you next time.